Well, that is always my prayer as we open God's word together that our Savior would be glorified, that we'd grow in a love, even deeper love for him than we already have. I invite you to join me in John chapter 12 again. You can see that as we do every first Sunday of the month, we're preparing for the Lord's table uh, this morning. And so we do have a text that does that for us. And we left off here last week in John chapter 12. We are in verses 27 through 36. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. And it's a passage that does focus on the glory of our Savior, specifically by focusing in on the power of Christ's cross. The power that the cross has to do what nothing else can do. And over the last few weeks, we've used that word power to describe the death of Jesus. And we've chosen that word because that is the language the New Testament uses to describe the crucifixion of Jesus. It's power, it's dunamis, it's strength, there's ability, there's might. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the word of the cross is the power, the supernatural strength of God. Romans 1, I am not ashamed, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ's cross. I'm not ashamed, I'm bold, why? Because it is the power, the might, the strength of God unto salvation. The cross can do what only God can do. The cross possesses convicting power. Think of John 16, 8, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will use the gospel of the cross to convict the world regarding sin. The cross contains conversion power. Think of Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches the cross. What happens? Thousands come to Christ in saving faith. Conversion power. The cross has conscience cleansing power, Hebrews 9. Atoning power, Hebrews 10. Transforming power, 2 Corinthians 5. The cross has reconciling Power. Think of Colossians 1. For it was the Father's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself. How does he do this? How are sinners reconciled to their creator? It is through the blood of Christ's cross. Colossians 1.20. Let's fast forward into eternity future. What will take place? For all of eternity, while well, the cross contains praise-producing power. Revelation 5 gives us a picture into the throne room of God where the angels in heaven sang a new song specifically to the Lamb, to Christ. And their new song goes like this, Worthy are you. We praise you. Why the praise? Why the worship? Here's why. For you were slain. It's because of your cross. The cross is the power of God. The cross does what nothing else can do. And power is what we have seen over the last few weeks in our passage here. The power of Christ's cross. The very reason we must be people of the cross, primarily. Those who not only sing about the cross, but are not afraid to speak boldly, lovingly about the cross. 
These are the reasons why we should be known more for our commitment to the cross than anything else. Why the motto of our life is to be, may it never be, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our motto, the cross. Yes, the cross, the death, but encompassing the resurrection and return of Jesus. So in verse 27, we saw, first of all, that first powerful effect of Christ's cross. Christ's cross had the power to trouble the Savior's soul. It's verse 27. Jesus, very open, my soul has become troubled. These are words of anguish falling off of Jesus' lips. He's contemplating what awaits him in only four days. He's troubled because he knows sin will be credited to his account. He's disturbed because he knows his father's wrath will soon be emptied upon his head. He's troubled because of the cross. Verse 28. We saw that Christ's cross is the power to display the father's glory. The power to display the father's glory in anguish. In his troubled soul, Jesus prays. This is a prayer of submission to go to the cross. Father, glorify your name. Christ knows that on the cross, his father will be glorified. Display your love for sinners. Glorify your name. This is submission to death. Magnify your grace. Demonstrate your holy righteousness. That's the prayer. In verse 31, we saw Christ's cross also has the power to determine the eternal destiny of every man. To determine the eternal destiny of every man. Verse 31, now judgment. There's a separating, a dividing. That's judgment. There's a dividing that's coming upon this world. Where Christ's cross is not believed, only divine judgment awaits. Where Christ's cross is not cherished, salvation will not be experienced. It's Christ's cross that separates the mercy of God from the judgment of God. Christ's cross is what determines who will experience everlasting life in glory and all the pleasure and satisfaction that comes with that. Or everlasting damnation in hell. The cross determines the spiritual destiny of every man. To which Jesus then adds in verse 31, the cross also has the power to dethrone Satan's rule. To dethrone Satan's rule. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Defeated first in principle when Christ dies, when he pays the penalty for sin, Christ releases us from the guilt of sin, the chains of sin, dethrones Satan's rule in principle. That will be a victory that comes to full fruition when Jesus will one day in the future finally cast Satan into the lake of fire. All because of his sacrificing death. Again, Christ's cross has the power to dethrone Satan's rule. So what we then ended with last week, again, verse 32 now, Christ's cross has the power to change a sinner's heart. 
the power to change a sinner's heart. Verse 32, and I, this is now a salvific promise from Christ himself, and I, if better when I am lifted up, when I'm crucified, here's what I will do, I will draw, supernatural work, I will draw all men, all kinds of men, all kinds of sinners, all kinds of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I will draw all men to myself in saving faith. Christ doesn't die to just provide a way of salvation. He dies to, to pay the penalty for sinners, specific sinners. I will draw them to myself. That's the promise. It's a rich passage. It's no wonder the hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, it's no wonder that hymn ends with these words. Were the whole realm of nature mine, if I possessed everything in this world and offered all of it to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving for the cross, that would be an offering far too small. Why? Because Christ's cross showcases a love so amazing, so divine, it demands only one thing. It demands my soul, my life, my all. Our boast is to only be in the cross of Christ. Again, the cross can do what nothing else can do. Yeah, there's more in this passage. There's two more effects of Christ's powerful cross. Look at verse 34. Let's pick it up here. Verse 34. And we'll read through verse 36, the conclusion now of Jesus' words. The crowd then answered him, verse 34, in light of everything that Jesus has just said about his coming crucifixion. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What kind of Messiah are you claiming to be? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He walks in the darkness, does not know where he goes. While you have the light... Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Let's pick up the story effect number six here of Christ's cross. Effect number six, Christ's cross has the power to reveal the kind of savior a person wants. Christ's cross has the power to reveal the kind of savior a person wants. The crowd knows that Jesus has been speaking about his death. They know that. Verse 33, we're given an explanatory note for us. He was saying this, referring to being lifted up. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die, but the crowd recognizes this. We need to be told this. The crowd knows it. Lifted up can only mean one thing, one thing. It's crucifixion. The Jews lived under Roman rule and crucifixion, not stoning, but crucifixion was the execution of choice for the Romans. 
And it was meant to be more than punishment. It was a warning, a gruesome warning to anyone who dared rise up against Roman authority. Just 30 years previous, a Roman prefect, his name was Quintilius Verus. That prefect crucified 2,000 Jews. He lifted them up. And he lined those crosses to span 50 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. Many within this crowd would have seen those crosses. Just a century before, Alexander Janius crucified 800 Jewish rebels in Jerusalem. 800. Historians tell us that in Jesus' lifetime, upwards of 30,000 people were crucified throughout Palestine. 30,000 death penalties lifted up. So the crowd knows what lifted up means. They've seen the torture firsthand. They've heard the cries of anguish. This is why they have a problem with what Jesus has been talking about. Because a crucified Messiah, a Messiah sentenced to death by a Gentile court, a Messiah beaten by Gentile soldiers and then stripped naked in shame for all the world to see, a Messiah who will hang as a helpless criminal, that's not the Messiah they were expecting. And that's not the Messiah they thought they needed. And that's not the Messiah they wanted. That's not the Messiah they proclaimed Jesus to be when he rode into town just the day before. Look back at verse 14. They exclaim, Hosanna. We sang that this morning, right? Hosanna. We worship the Lord. We worship Christ in that song. Why? Because of his cross. But that's not this crowd. Verse 14, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name, in the power, with the might of the Lord, even who? Even the king of Israel. That's who we want. We're going to worship you, Jesus, because you are going to crush Caesar. And you're going to wield a sovereign scepter. We're praising you, Jesus, because you're the crusader, the conqueror, the warrior. You're the king. But now Jesus says here, he's going to carry his own crossbar to his own execution. It's not the Savior they wanted. That's why the crowd confronts Jesus and says in verse 34, we have heard out of the law. This is referring to the Old Testament scriptures as a whole. We have heard out of the law that the Christ, the Messiah, the coming King, is to remain forever. That's what we've heard. That's what we've read. Now you're talking about dying. Old Testament promises though an eternal reign, a forever king. And indeed, that is what the Old Testament promised. The crowd is right here. The Messiah would rule not only from sea to sea, but from year to year without end. That is the promise. The Messiah's kingship is one of those threads that is weaved throughout all of the Old Testament. It's the great hope, not only for Israel, it's our hope. It's our hope, even for the church. 
So I just want to show you this thread. It's okay to do a little Bible study this morning, right? It's okay? Start in Genesis chapter 49. That'll be on the screen as well, but if you want to turn there, Genesis 49, and in verse 10, this is going to be kingly language. This is Jacob now blessing his son Judah. We read this, part of the blessing. The scepter, kingly language, the ruling staff shall not depart from Judah. This is the first specific promise that there will be a sovereign king coming. And to him, to that promised king shall be the obedience, not just of Israel, but the obedience of who? The peoples, the nations, the world. The nations will bow down before this coming king. It's the first specific promise of this Messiah. It's then built upon Numbers 24, another prophecy. I see him, I see that king, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter, a sovereign shall rise from Israel. One from Jacob shall have dominion, shall have a rule, will have a kingdom. So it'd be a kingdom that would have no end. So what God promises David, 2 Samuel 7, this is the Davidic covenant. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me for how long? Forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There's many more promises given, but, but that's the foundation of the hope. And so as you come to the Psalms then, what you find is that there's hope now put in, in song and in praise. This is now worship based upon those promises, Psalm 2. He, speaking of God the Father, he will speak to them, his enemies, the unbelieving nations. Speak to them in his anger. He'll terrify them in his fury. What will he say? Here's what he'll say. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Speaking of my coming king, the promises, the foundational hope. Verse eight, now speaking to that king, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. It's a worldwide kingdom. Very ends of the earth as your possession will also be eternal. You shall break them, your enemies, with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Your kingdom will never be destroyed. Come to Psalm 89. The promises continue. The praise continues. I have made a covenant with my chosen. Verse 3. I have sworn to David, my servant, Davidic covenant. What's the promise? I will establish your seed and build up your throne to all generations. And you can count on it because once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Again, Davidic covenant. I'm not telling a lie. You can trust this. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. 
The Messiah's kingdom would last as long as the sun and the moon remain in the sky based upon God's holiness, his faithfulness. This is the great hope for the prophets all founded on that Davidic covenant. The great hope for the prophets that they held out to God's people. Isaiah 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And why is this so great? Why are we looking forward to the son of God, this child to be born? Here's why. Because the government will rest on his shoulders. That's kingdom language. There will be no end to the increase of his government. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. This is the coming Messiah. This is the king. Ezekiel 37. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, and David, my servant. The greater David, the second David, will be their prince, their king. This is an everlasting covenant. It will last forever. Daniel 2, there will be a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So these are the promises that Israel had set their hope upon, an eternal king and an everlasting kingdom. Zechariah tells us that this kingdom would be established after a great battle, that the Messiah would wage war. He would defeat every Gentile ruler. That's Zechariah 14, Yahweh speaking. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. This is the warrior, conqueror, king. This is conquest. What will be the outcome? Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one, in his name, the only one. This is the final battle. It ushers in an eternal reign. So this is why the crowd now is scoffing at Jesus. We know the scriptures, they say. We know the promises. The Gentiles die. Not the Messiah, Look at verse 34. Continue at how can you then say? Again, we know these promises. How can you then say, and this is derision now in their tone, how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? How can you claim to be the Messiah king? How can you accept all of those hosannas that we just gave you yesterday? at the same time telling us that you're going to die at the hands of the Gentiles. How can you say this? Now notice the description they give to Jesus here. Son of man, this is key. That's another title for Messiah, for the Christ. It's used in Daniel chapter 7. That's a kingly prophecy. It's a majestic prophecy, eternal in its breadth. They pick up on this idea of son of man. 
And again, they know the promises. Here it is, verse 13. This is Daniel 7, 13. Behold, be amazed, be shocked at this with the clouds of heaven. That's a reference to the glory of God, the majesty of God, divine transcendence. But the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. One who looked like a man, but was obviously greater than a mere man. How do we know that he's greater? Because he comes up to the ancient of days. That's a reference to God the Father who's sitting on a sovereign throne in this vision. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. That's royal language. You enter the throne room, you're allowed to approach the throne. He's presented before this eternal king. And to this son of man was given dominion, glory, and a what? And a kingdom that all the people's Nations and men of every language, Genesis 49, peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Universal, worldwide kingdom. The Son of Man is the king of this kingdom. It's eternal. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the Messiah the crowd wanted. This is why they welcomed him into town just the day before. This is why they sing praises to him with joy. You can understand the excitement of the crowd. Again, this title that they choose, Son of Man, where do they get this from? They get it from Jesus. Look back to verse 23. Verse 23, you can understand the excitement here. Verse 23, Jesus answered saying, the hour has come, the long-awaited hour. The crowd hears now, this is fulfillment, Daniel 7 language. The hour has come for who? For the Son of Man, the majestic Son of Man from Daniel 7. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. So Daniel 7 promises, to him will be given glory and a kingdom. So this crowd hears when Jesus says that, they hear now's the time. Bring glory back to Israel, Jesus. The crowd loves this message up to this point. Strike down the nations, begin with Rome. Take back the throne, rule from sea to sea. But then comes the big letdown. Because that's not the glory Jesus has in mind. He was not about to fulfill all those kingdom prophecies when he rides into town on this day, no. To the contrary, he was not going to defeat Rome. Instead, he was going to be destroyed by Rome. Back to verse 24, now's the time, the hour has come. What's the glory that Jesus has in mind? It's the glory of sacrifice, not kingdom. It's the glory of falling into the earth and dying, verse 24. It's the glory connected with verse 32, the glory of being lifted up, not on a throne, but lifted up from the earth, lifted up on a, on a cross, pierced by Roman nails, 
secured to a shameful cross, executed like a guilty criminal. But for this crowd, that was not the Messiah they wanted. That was not the Messiah they thought they needed. They wanted the glory of the throne, not the shame and the sacrifice of the cross. Will Jesus one day reign with that sovereign scepter forever and ever? Absolutely. All those prophecies indeed will come to fruition. That's coming. But what Jesus is saying here is before he can reign on that throne, before he comes as the son of man and the power, the the clouds of glory, he first needs to die to fulfill other prophecies. He needs to first come as the suffering servant. Before he fulfills Daniel 7, he must fulfill Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He must be crucified. Remember Isaiah 53. He must be pierced through. He must be crucified, pierced through for our transgressions. He must pay for sin so that we can be in his kingdom. He needs to fulfill Psalm 22 and be forsaken by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 says his hands and his feet must be pierced. He must be crucified. He must be the suffering servant. He must be the forsaken Messiah. Zechariah 14 that says that the Messiah comes and does battle, that's coming. But Zechariah 12 says that conquering king is the pierced Lord, the crucified Lord pierced through. That's Jesus' message here. He must be lifted up. And the crowd understands all that. They know what lifted up means. And so, back to verse 34, finish it. They sneer at Jesus. Who is this son of man that you're talking about? That's not the son of man we believe. Who's this beaten, bruised, betrayed, bloodied, humiliated, crucified son of man you're claiming to be? Who's that? It's not the son of man we want. We want the conquering one. We want the powerful king. I had to come in and ease all of our political problems. We don't want this lifted up suffering servant you're talking about and claiming to be. We don't want the suffering servant who will purchase all of our spiritual needs. That's not the one we're waiting for. And amazing, with these mocking words, this crowd rejects Jesus for the last time. This is their final rejection. The next time we hear this crowd speak in John, this is what they will say. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. He says that he's coming to be crucified, then do it. Kill him, execute him. And then the crowd makes a statement and it shows their heart. We have no what? We have no king but Caesar. We wanted him to be our king. He refused. We want another king. We have no king but Caesar. They welcomed Jesus into town because they thought he would bring the kingdom. 
But once they realize that was not going to happen, they call for his execution. You're not going to give us what we want, then we want nothing to do with you. Let's bring all this back to the main point. The cross has the power to reveal the kind of savior a person really wants. The cross exposes what we truly think about Christ and his gospel. Because we see the same reaction from the crowd. We see that same reaction today. Like this John 12 crowd, many welcome Jesus with joy, open arms. Many will praise his name. But the reality is, they only want Jesus for the physical blessings. They only want Jesus, they only want Jesus for, the, for the crown. What they want him to give to them. But once it becomes apparent that those physical, temporal blessings aren't coming, what do they do? They lose interest in Jesus. They turn their attention to other things. Even more, they turn their attention to other saviors. They turn their attention to other gospels. Other saviors that will give them their selfish desires. Other gospels that promise to give them what they want. Just like this John 12 crowd, they say this isn't the Jesus we were hoping for. This isn't the Jesus we wanted. We thought he would have been someone different. I can remember very vividly 10 years ago, preaching through the gospel of Mark and somebody coming up after the service and saying, that's not the Jesus I know. I don't know what Jesus you know then. That's not the Jesus who I thought would give me what I wanted Again, we see this all the time. You have this in the health and wealth movement. People come to Jesus, why? To be healed of their illnesses. To be blessed with finances. They come to Jesus for the crown. You see this in the religious right movement. Jesus is used as a means to make our country more moral, more politically conservative. It's for the crown. See this in the seeker-friendly church model. People come to Jesus to build up their self-esteem, right? Come to Jesus, why? He has a wonderful, easy, difficult, free plan for your life. They want the Son of Man, Jesus, that will bring them temporal glory, earthly blessings, worldly victories. I can hear in the back of my mind one TV, I'm going to call him, he's not a pastor, one TV speaker who says, if you come to Jesus, and I'm not making this up, you come to Jesus and you will have the best parking lot in the mall parking lot. Like, come to our parking lot. Like, you have any parking lot to choose from in our mall, right? That's, that's one of the promises that this person says. You'll have the best parking spaces if you come to Jesus. I'm not making it up. It's not the suffering servant Jesus. This is a suffering servant, Jesus promised. I will give you every spiritual blessing, not in the parking lot of the mall. I'll give you every spiritual blessing in the where? Heavenly places. I will give you everything that truly matters. But over and over again, people come to Christ because they want that temporal crown, but not Christ's cross. 
So often, this is why people leave Christianity. You ask them, why did you leave Christianity? Why did you leave? The answer is because Jesus didn't give me what I wanted. I thought it was, I was coming for something else. All of this goes back to what we saw last week. The true and full gospel is not proclaimed unless the cross is explained. Because the cross reveals the kind of savior a person really wants. Do they want the atoning savior? The substitutionary savior? The forgiving savior? The reconciling savior? In a word, do they want the crucified savior? Or do they want the worldly savior? The earthly savior who will give them the physical promises, temporal promises, and they will give it to them now. That is why this crowd turns on Jesus for the last time. He was not going to give them the earthly kingdom they wanted when they wanted it. They want the glory now, not the shame. They want the throne now, not the execution stake. They wanted the kingdom now, not the sacrifice for sin. And so their heart is exposed. Leads to the seventh effect we see here. What only the cross of Jesus can do. Number seven, Christ's cross has the power to demand urgent action. The power to demand urgent action. In light of the crowd's rejection, notice verse 35. Jesus issues both an appeal and a warning. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. That is to say, the light of God's grace is setting on you. The day of darkness, the day of judgment is coming. Jesus is referring back to the Isaiah 9 prophecy. When Isaiah says the people, prophesying of the coming Messiah, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Jesus says, Isaiah was talking about you. You've been walking in the darkness of your sin, but the light of salvation has come. That's me. Those who live in a dark land, that's you. The light will shine on them. That's me. I'm the light. You've seen the light of my miracles. You've seen the bursting rays of my claims. I'm God's promised light. The light has been among you. Here's the problem. You've been hiding. You've been hiding in the darkness. For three years, you've run from the light for fear that your deeds would be exposed. And so I'm issuing you one final appeal one final appeal, verse 35, walk while you have the light. Let the light of my holiness expose your need and your sin. And walk to me, walk to me in saving faith. Let the light of my coming cross being lifted up, let that cleanse you. Because the reality is this, you're in great danger. You don't even realize it. You're in great danger. Finish verse 35. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. You think you're heading to the kingdom. You're heading to God's hell. You don't know where you're going. And the time is running out for you.
verse 36. While you have the light, implication, you won't always have the light. Again, the light of God's gospel is setting quickly. It hasn't set yet, but it's coming. While you have the light, believe in the light. Believe every claim I've made about myself. Believe that I am God in human flesh, the suffering servant, the son of man, both. Believe all of that. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light, adopted into the family of light, the family of God. Here's the warning. Though the light of my gospel is shining upon you now, it will not always shine upon you. Once I leave you, the light of God's grace will be gone and your day of salvation will be over. That's the warning. Will your last words be, to me, who is this suffering son of man? Or will your last words be, we believe that you are the Christ, the son of God? Suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And we come to you and to your cross. We come to you for our cleansing. There will be no more public miracles from this point on. There will be no more public teaching from this point on. No more public calls to repentance from here on out. What you have from verses 37 until the end of the chapter here, John tells us more about what Jesus said on this day, more of his final appeal. But once this day ends, once this day ends, the light of Christ's grace is gone. And that is what we see in verse 36, the middle of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke, and now notice what John adds, symbolic, and he went away and what? Hid himself from them. This is purposeful on Jesus' end. He hides himself from this crowd. The son of God's grace is now set upon that generation of Israel. Christ's patience has finally run out. The light is gone. It's a turning point. One commentator wrote this. It is a simple fact of life. The opportunity to believe will not always be there. It is not only that we have no guarantee that we will live to see tomorrow, but we have no guarantee that true concern for our soul will last beyond today. God makes it clear in scripture that no one can presume that they may be saved when they please. In effect, Jesus is simply saying what Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he what? While he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Implication, he might not always be found. He might not always be near. The light of the gospel will not always shine and Jesus hiding himself is a living picture of that reality. So this is the power of Christ's cross. It demands urgent action. 
Do not presume that the light of God's grace will always shine upon you. And the call is this, do not let the sun of the gospel set upon you. So I conclude with just a few questions here. First, have you come in saving faith to this crucified, resurrected, and coming again Savior? Have you allowed the light of Christ to expose your sin, your need? Are you looking for the atoning Savior, the substitutionary Savior, the spiritual blessing Savior? Have you walked by the light of Christ to him for the salvation of your soul? For those of us who have indeed come to Christ in saving faith, do you boast only in his cross? Do you speak of his cross? Do you offer praise because of his cross? Have you determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Is that the motto of your life? It's Christ's cross going to direct people to the cross. I'm going to glorify that crucified and resurrected Savior. They will know more about my understanding of Christ's cross than anything else about me. It's a cross that we celebrate together. The powerful cross of Christ who has changed our eyes to see the true glory of who Jesus is. Father, as we celebrate crucifixion of Christ, now let us remember in a worthy manner the perfect life of our Savior. That he battled temptation every moment of every day so that he would grant to us his perfect righteousness. May we remember that he went to the cross not for his sin, but for our sin. He was our substitute. He satisfied your wrath that should have been against us, paid in full the penalty for our sin. And let us not forget that he rose again conquering Satan and sin and death. He rose again for us power of Christ to resurrect the true temple of God so that we too would have that promise that we will live with him forever. Let us come to the table this morning together with hearts that love our Savior in a deep way. May this be an act of worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.